Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 270 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by Colin Sillerud, a photographer living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I have always enjoyed Colin's photography, and so it was great to get to talk to him on the podcast. On today's show, we discuss the role of mentors in our photographic journey, approaches to teaching workshops, and so much more. So grab yourself a cup of coffee, a beer, or a glass of wine, and enjoy the show. Before we get started, and at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I wanted to ask you for your support over on Patreon. Fortunately, we have 180 awesome listeners who have stepped up to support the show. However, we've lost over 10 supporters in the past month alone. We average over 4,000 downloads per week, so I know there's many more of you listening that are not supporting the show. I've set the goal to get 20 new supporters by the end of July. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen to help us out. Thanks to everyone who already has. You're the best. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Colin Sillerud, it's great to have you on the podcast, my friend. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I, we've, I feel like I've been following your work forever now, but I can't even remember the first time I started looking at your stuff, but I've always been really impressed by it. So you got to keep up the great work. (laughs) Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I feel like you won a couple of competitions maybe back in the day or got really some recognition on a couple of images. I feel like one of them might've been like uh, um, from the Grand Canyon or something with lightning and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I got, um, um, I entered the, the Epson Pano contest like three years ago and the three that I entered all won gold and one of them won one of their special prizes. So they sent me oh, some sweet. money, which was pretty sweet. awesome. Yeah. I spent that on a trip going somewhere. I don't remember where now, but that's the way you got to do it, man. <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was cool. That was nice. You got some really awesome, unique aerial images. I think you shot from a plane, which yeah. my buddy yeah. Kane and I have been looking at lately because we're trying to plan a similar trip over Canyonlands. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that, that's a, a funny story how that happened, actually. Um, I don't know if you want me to introduce myself before I get into yeah, a let's tangent do that, or something and like then that. Yeah, can maybe tell that story. That would be cool. So cool. yeah, go ahead, and, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Cool. Yeah, so my name is Colin Sillerud. I'm a landscape photographer. Um, I've shot other things, weddings and products and things like that. But um, I have a pretty limited time, uh, free time right now. And so I spend most of my time shooting landscapes. Um, I'm 40 years old. I've been shooting for about 10 years. And I got into photography basically when I was actually living in Manhattan. And the city, it, it was a lot of fun, but it made me pretty claustrophobic. I'm from the West originally. And so I needed something to kind of get me out of the apartment and something that I could you know, have as a creative outlet. So I just picked up a camera and started rocking with it. And the more I did that, the more time I spent in Central Park photographing pigeons and things like that. And, uh, and so one thing led to another and I, uh, I left the city because I, uh, I couldn't handle that. Actually, that's an interesting story. I, um, um, I was, uh, visiting home and, uh, my dad was like, well, let's go backpacking to the Escalante for, for a few days. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. I got this camera. Let me try some stuff there. And I went out there and it was the first time that I felt normal in like six years. And I was like, okay, that's it. 
Manhattan, done, Southwest, here I come, back again. Um, and so that's how I got into photography. Well, what were and, you doing in Manhattan? <clears throat> so that also is an interesting story. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's funny that when, when you start telling like history, you know, one of the things I've learned, I, I listen to a lot of history podcasts, is that there's no really starting point, right? Like everything is just a precursor to another story that came before it. Sure. And so that's this scenario as well. Um, Except for we're doing it all out of order. Yeah, that's right. I'm going backwards. And what happened there? Um, so, uh, yeah, I um, I was living in Costa Rica, actually. And I was living with this family, studying Spanish and surfing and just generally hanging out. I think I was about 22 at the time. And uh, the family that I lived with, they had only one English language TV channel. And it was Fashion TV New York. And it was just, you know, it wasn't just about fashion. It was just about exploring New York, basically anything going on in New York, food, whatever. And both of my parents went to school at, uh, at Yale. And so they had a lot of stories as I grew up of Manhattan and going to shows and things like that. And so watching this, this channel, I was like, man, that's the place I got to be. That just seems so cool. And so I just, when I left, uh, left Costa Rica, I decided to go to Manhattan and I studied journalism and documentary film out there. And so I lived out there for six years and had a lot of fun, but, um, it, uh, I just, I don't know. Nature is such a part of me that, yeah. you know, I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't find my place in the city. You know, everybody could be really into, you know, uh, seeing concerts, which I, I love, but they would see concerts or go to museums or, um, you know, go out to eat constantly or any number of things. And I love all that stuff, but it all is built, you know, it's all centered around being social and spending money. And I was a poor college student, so I didn't have any money. And I'm kind of a balanced introvert extrovert where uh, I really like to be around people, but it drains me. And so then I need time away. And so the city I found was just kind of always draining me. Gotcha. Where did you, where did you grow up? I grew up in, in uh, Los Alamos, which is a small town where they developed the, uh, the atomic bomb in, in New Mexico, until uh, I was nine. And then I went to high school in Albuquerque. And when I was 18, I basically left and I actually lived in Durango for a year, oh. um, your town. Yeah. And then I, uh, I moved out to California, lived in LA, San Diego. Then I moved down to Costa Rica for a year um, and then out to Manhattan, back to California for a couple of years and then back to Albuquerque for my second degree, which is in chemical engineering. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Full hey, circle. You're a journeyman. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, yeah. I mean, I liked I liked uh, journalism a lot, but it uh, it didn't pay at sure. all unless you were just going to work eighty hours a week and like that was your thing. And right. for me, I, I loved writing, but I, I couldn't handle the deadlines. Um, I, gotcha. I just couldn't write under a deadline, so it didn't uh, work out for me. Well, it's somewhat timely that your love for photography came from visiting Escalante um, because I literally just got back from a trip uh, to Escalante this past 10 days. Nice. I, I spent like six days in Hole in the Rock Road. Awesome. Um, and I went into Coyote Gulch for the first time, which was for the, amazing. Yeah. I can't believe that's your first time there. Coyote yeah, Gulch it's is ridiculous. Just, yeah. That's where I was for uh, the trip I was telling you about. And I was just completely blown away. Oh, it's, I mean, just the adventure getting into there is, Super fun. <laughs> so, yeah, so now sure. you're living in Albuquerque. Um, are you married? Kids? What's the deal there? 
So I, uh, I got married three days ago. Oh, yep. Congratulations. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, we had a, a home wedding and it was super fun. We had about 50 people and just, uh, I made this giant pitcher of margaritas and you know, the rest is history. Nice. 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 And I understand that, um, when you're not making images, you're a solar engineer. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I, I got my master's in chemical engineering, uh, with, with sort of a focus on materials and, I worked at the lab for a long time, Sentia National Labs, which is one of the big employers here. One of the, I think it's the largest of the national labs in the country. But it, um, it's interesting. It was sort of like Manhattan, where the lab just was claustrophobic. You know, you're working indoors all the time, security clearances, all these, you know, sort of highbrow restrictions on your life. And I've never really been a personality that enjoyed restrictions. Um, and so it, uh, it didn't... It just didn't mesh with my personality there. I, I made some great friends and great connections and, uh, you know, I value my time there, but I needed a little bit more flexibility. So I started working for um, a local engineering firm in town that specialized in, in solar research and testing. And uh, they were owned by a, a large corporation um, up until two and a half years ago now. And the corporation decided to divest and they were going to just shut down the whole operation. And me and three other employees basically said, look, we we're here, we're running it. You're not going to make any money selling off any of the stuff. It's going to be a pain for you guys to do that. Why don't you just give it to us? And then you will maintain a um, sort of a presence in the industry and things like that. And so they gave us like $3 million worth of equipment for a dollar, basically. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, and so, yeah, we're running that now. And it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun, uh, a huge challenge. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, that's my day job. All right. Fixing problems well, cool. in, in solar. Well, I feel like the, we'll come back to that later in the com- conversation for sure. But um, I want to dive more deeply into the photography side of things. So maybe let's start off by talking about uh, your personal philosophy on photography. You know, what is it and how did you arrive there? Yeah. Um, I would say that my personal philosophy is adventure and exploration. Like that's really, that that kind of sums up everything else that I do. Um, I tell some people uh, when they ask, you know, about my art or anything like that, like it's sort of the exploration comes first. If I didn't have a camera, I would still go out into the wilderness. I would still go to try to see, you know, the things that I do. And so what I mean by, um, by that is, Like I love to see events occur and especially events that are novel to me. And so one of the things, it's almost like a little game that I play with myself when I go out into nature, I sort of pretend like I'm the only one there or I'm seeing it for the first time, you know, or anything like that. And one of the things that I love about landscape photography is that to a certain extent, that's, that's pretty true. That even if you're going to a place that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have gone before you, you're still seeing a set of weather conditions or light conditions or a confluence of, you know, um, astronomical events or anything like that, that are unique to the, the moment that you're standing there. And so slice in time. That's right. Yeah. Um, like if I was born, you know, 200 years ago, I think I'd be, you know, riding some ship crossing the ocean, you know, (laughs) or doing some Arctic passage or something like that. I mean, you um, kind of have like a like a captain's name, like Captain Sillerud. <laughs> oh, that's the first time I've heard that, but I like that a lot. Yeah, I'll, maybe that I'll tell my weird. lady that and see if she 
see how she responds. That could be your new Instagram handle. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) We'll start a a separate page for that one. Yes. Just Um, you dressed up in sailor outfits. Yeah. A multitude of sailor outfits from around the world. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But so. We digress. Yeah. 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 But that's, you know, that, that really summarizes it. Like I just like, I like novelty. I, I think my brain just naturally loves novelty. Um, you know, I seek it out on a daily basis. It's one of the reasons that I'm a scientist. You know, I, I cannot do routine jobs where you're doing the same thing over and over and over. Um, and so landscape photography is one of the things that uh, gets me out there into nature and gives me a purpose around my exploration. So I'm curious, how does your kind of philosophy and approach to nature and landscape photography um, deal with and or handle situations where, you know, it's mundane, for lack of a better word, like, you know, you're maybe you're storm chasing, or maybe you're expecting certain conditions, and it, you know, it doesn't happen. How, how does that approach um, deal with those kind of things? Yeah, I, that's a super good question. Um, I like to challenge myself. And also, let me say that I, I think one of the one of the fundamental aspects, I think that drives art is limitation. And um, I think you need to have both freedom to be able to play, but also limitation to sort of define the bounds of a problem. And then you can be creative within those bounds. I've seen some people like, you know, if they bring 500 lenses, you know, they get so bogged down in the multitude of options that they have that they're unable to sort of focus and create within that. Um, I also look at like, uh, like people that make movies, you know, you can look at um, George Lucas, you know, he made the first three um, Star Wars and they're amazing. You know, they're incredible works of art and he had a shoestring budget. And so I remember watching an interview about all the choices he had to make, all the cuts he had to make of things. He was like, well, we can't afford that. So it, it really focused, you know, his work. Whereas if you look at the next three movies that he made, he had an unlimited budget. And I think that even he would say he made some choices that he probably should have left out. Um, and so like, can we just completely get rid of Jar Jar Binks? Yeah, just completely. I mean, they basically did in the next two movies, even though he was supposed to be a seminal character, but, um, anyway, that's another digression. Indeed. Um, but so, um, going back to, yeah, handling situations where they don't necessarily work out the way that you would expect that sort of, um, what I would say about that is you're, you're still working with that same sort of, you know, canvas scenario and you're, ha- you're limited by things. And so I think that that limitation, you can use it as a hindrance where you're kind of like, oh, you know, there are no clouds in the sky. We can't shoot today or whatever. Or you can use it as a reason to push yourself or an excuse to be creative. And so, you know, if it's clear skies, there are all kinds of things you can do with that. You can, you know, focus more predominantly on the night sky, which there's always something there. Um, or you can go into the canyons where you're looking for that super strong reflected light or any number of other things. But it, I think it forces you out of your comfort zone when you have to work with conditions that you're not necessarily used to. And from the perspective of leading workshops, which I know we'll probably get into a little bit later, I think that actually is really important. You have to be able to think on the fly, no matter what. Um, you know, when, when you have people that are relying on you, you have to come up with something that is a teaching moment for them on, on a regular basis. And so uh, one of the things I like about that is it also, it's another thing that forces you to think creatively and come up with 
some viewpoint of the situation that will be beneficial to your clients. Yeah, I mean, maybe let's just go with that. I'm curious to talk more about how your approach to leading workshops, um, kind of what's your philosophy around that, and what are you trying to distill upon your students? The first thing that I'm trying to distill is the sense of adventure and an exploration and fun, for sure. Um, I don't lead a lot of workshops to places that a lot of other people lead them to because I want people to see new things and I want them to sort of be able to compose um, a little bit more freely and give them the opportunity to play with the space. Um, And then I can come in, I can guide them uh, and things like that. But initially I, I want the focal point of the workshop to be the people basically becoming more creative in their own, um, their own capabilities. I don't want to just lead somebody somewhere and be like, here's the stock comp, you know, here's what you, you know, here's where you point your camera and everything. And then we'll wait five minutes, click, click, click. Okay. Now let's go back to the bar or something like that. And so my, uh, my workshops, I don't include accommodations in them. And the reason for that is I don't know where we're going to be sleeping every night. And I I don't, I love that. I don't want to be limited by that. Um, and so, yeah. you know, I, I just kind of leave that off the cuff so that, you know, while we're, while we're out there, if I'm like, yo guys, where we are is cool, but two hours away is epic. Let's go over there, you know, or even four or five hours. I mean, we've done some long drives in the past. Um, sure. And you're basing and, that, I guess, off of like weather conditions or, yeah. you know, something that you have an intuition that it's going to be a better opportunity to get better images or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, like, like we were talking about with weather, you know, if, if it's clear blue skies, but we're there to shoot lightning, well, we've got to come up with something. And sometimes the places that I really like to do that are further away. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll just change the tenor of the trip, drive somewhere else and then set up, set up shop there for a little bit. Um, and then on that measure right now, I limit my workshops to four clients. Right. Makes it more nimble. It makes it a lot more nimble and I can spend a lot more time with each person. Yeah. What's your approach to trying to make sure that people have the right expectation for for that experience? Because I think there's a lot of people that go on workshops that are kind of like, well, I want to shoot these places and I want to get these photographs and I want to have this kind of experience. And what you're describing is a lot more appealing to the kind of the way I think is let's adjust and react and let's be flexible and but, you know, that comes with a little bit more risk. and But also, you know, the fluidity is actually part of the adventure and the fun. So, But for some people, that, that fluidity could probably be frustrating. So I'm curious, how do you screen that out? Yeah, that's, that's also a super good question. Um, the first thing I would say is that, you know, both uh, this, is, this is something that I learned really through engineering, is that you have to set clients' expectations ahead of time. Um, before you're in the field, before you've committed to a project, before any of that happens, you need to communicate pretty extensively upfront to say, this is the kind of workshop I lead. You know, these are, this is how the workshop plays out. Um, and, uh, you know, these are, these are the pluses and minuses of it. But if, if that's something that you're interested in, something that you're into, I think that there are a lot of benefits and, um, you can try it out. But if you're not into it, you know, don't, don't stay on board just for me. You know, if it's, you know, within the cutoff time. And I, I always talk to people before I have like a non-refundable period or anything like that. Um, 
yeah, communication is, is absolutely key. The other thing I think is that you can't lead a workshop for everyone. And I know some people that lead, you know, larger workshops, they'll have eight, 12 people. They, they sort of, you know, when you start to fill out with that many people, you're forced into leading a workshop sort of for everybody, which in my opinion also means you're, you're leading a workshop for nobody. You know, there's, there's no, there's no specific person that's going to be like that workshop was amazing. Um, and so by limiting the size and by communicating it, it lets me, I think, select or itself selects a clientele that is more interested in the style of workshop that I'm leading. So they know ahead of time what they're getting into. And then they, you know, they're already somebody that is interested in that. Yeah, no, that's perfect. I did a, <clears throat> I did a one-on-one workshop last fall with a guy and I was very upfront with him from the beginning that it was like from day to day, I have no idea where we're going to be. Like we're going to start here, but where we end up, I have no idea. And it was perfect because we, you know, we got to photograph some really amazing stuff, but if we would have been tied to a, you know, a city or a specific, a hotel, you know, he would have gotten way fewer opportunities to make good images. So I think that, that fluidity and that flexibility can create a really awesome experience. Yeah. Do you lead a lot of workshops? You know, just not a ton, like mostly small stuff like you're talking about, like one, mm-hmm. one or two people kind of a deal and very infrequently, just mostly probably for the same reasons as you, like it's a, it's a time constraint and it's an opportunity cost. But um, maybe that's a good maybe that's a good um, place for me to ask another question I had for you. Um, I know, you, like you said, you have a full time job just like I do. What's the draw for you to teach workshops and to monetize your efforts in photography? Like, what's your motivation? Well, the first one is that I have you know through I started pursuing engineering when I was twenty nine, so eleven years ago. And since then, I've been spending more and more and more time sitting behind a desk and sitting down and less and less time outside. And it's getting to the point where I'm, I'm really starting to struggle with that, um, and it, even from a motivational standpoint. And so even though I'm an owner in this company and, uh, you know, I've helped grow it over the last, I've been there for five and a half years. <clears throat> over, the, over that period, I, um, my interest in in retaining my ownership stake in the company is starting to wane. And the few workshops that I've led, I just loved it. I mean, completely loved it, threw myself into it. Like I, I've always sort of taken a mentorship role in a lot of, uh, you know, friendships or relationships that I've had and leading a workshop is uh, you, you kind of carry that into it and you get to see, you know, the, the reaction of your students when you, you know, you take them to the Grand Canyon, it just lights up with lightning or any of those things. It's just an experience, you know, that, that right. is going to be hard to match ever. And, and then for me, you know, the, the challenge of the way that I lead workshops, one of the challenges is that you don't know where you're going to be. And so you're always making decisions, you know, on the fly. Every second you're looking, reading the weather, you know, looking at this, looking at that, gauging safety, gauging any number of things and making decisions. And it's just like, such a high intensity output that I don't know. I just absolutely loved it. I was so drawn to it. The, the first one I did, I was like, okay, I, I need to start transitioning more and more of my, my professional work to this. Gotcha. And yeah. And it, um, it's something that the people in uh, around me that have mentored me, I would say that one of the things that they all have in common is they all found something to do in life that they coincidentally love to do. 
you know, like my dad is a, he's a biophysicist and he just geeks out and just absolutely loves his job. You know, I mean, he has his entire garage is a lab space, an engineering space that he just rocks out crazy experiments. He's like, yeah, Colin, check this out. This is the only experiment of its kind, you know, like this. And it's in my garage. And I'm like, that is so rad. Um, and so I've seen people and, you know, it's a, I think it's a very, it, it can be rare that somebody can have that, the, the ability to, to have a skill that they love like that. And, um, you know, the capability to, to monetize it. And that's a little bit how I feel that I, I love landscape photography and I love leading workshops and, you know, if not now, when, so I can always come back to engineering. I have that expertise. I, you know, I have that network. Um, and so, yeah, I, I want to get out there. I, I want to be, um, I'd like that to be, I mean, workshops, probably 60% of my income and then the other percentage from some multitude of um, other avenues that I'm exploring in, uh, sure. you know, right. monetizable like, forms of landscape <clears throat> photography. Like sailor outfits on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Captain Silverwood line. Yeah. Gear. Yeah. I'm, I'm dying to see that. <laughs> so, well, I've been, you know, I, one of the, one of the funny things is that like, I, I don't buy a lot of things, you know, I'm not like a super materialistic guy. But for some reason, I just love outdoor gear. Like, I love shells. Like, if I could have 50 shells for no reason whatsoever, I, I would. Like but, a raincoat? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, yeah. Yeah, like a hiking shell. Yeah. Um, I don't know why. It feels like armor, you know? When you're out there in the elements, you're just – it reminds me of, I don't know, being dressed up in like a like a mech outfit or something like that. From Well, I mean, imagine that whatever. with that – Awesome Captain Silverwood logo on it. Exactly. So here it is. You you branded you it. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're outdoor shells. Yeah. yeah. Brave the elements like Captain Silverwood. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Trademarked. Exactly. We, right here. They heard about it here first. Well, you just brought up an interesting side topic that I thought would be fun to explore. I mean, you talked about mentorship and you talked about being around people that found excitement in your, in your life and, and you, and you spoke specifically of your dad. And I'd be really curious to hear you talk about or inflect upon how your relationship with your dad or growing up around your dad has influenced your approach to photography or your ability to immerse yourself in photography. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a deep, deep well right there. Um, well, I mean, it, it just starts from my dad's innate curiosity. Um, you know, growing up, my dad would just regale me with stories of anything that he had done from when he, so he grew up on a farm, um, in rural Minnesota and it was sort of during the, the rocket race and moon race and things like that. And so he started building his own rockets and he would mix his own rocket fuel, you know, the whole nine. And he blew up, uh, one of his barns, uh, when he was mixing rocket fuel and, uh, left it for a while and it got a little hotter than he expected. And yep, the, the barn blew up and uh, blew up some rockets. And, you know, his he's just got all these stories of, of his dad, you know, walking up to him after he he, uh, he blew up a rocket and his dog or his dad was uh, was milking a cow and the cow kicked him as a result of the rocket. And he just slowly ambles up to my dad and he goes, you know, Laurel, I really wish you wouldn't do that when I was milking the cows. But um yeah, I mean, from being a little kid, the first time he took me camping, I was like six weeks old. And so I've been in in nature uh, extensively, which meant road trips, which meant a ton of time spent sitting in the car having conversations. And, you know, he would tell me about 
just every part of his life and every the the common theme was that it was all tied together with a curiosity and a love for exploration and knowledge and so he was my first mentor certainly and then he also always encouraged me to explore anything and everything and one thing he didn't do was give me a lot of direction you know he almost gave me too too big a palette um, yeah. I think I may have gotten to where I am now a little faster had he also taught me how to achieve goals. Um, but, you know, everything comes with a plus and minus. You know, I mean, his, his, the freewheeling approach that he had gave me exposure to so many different things that, you know, I wouldn't be the same person if he, uh, if he did it differently. So I can't really judge that. I am who I am now. But yeah. definitely my dad played a big role. Yeah, absolutely. Well, along those lines, I'm curious, what qualities do you think make for a good mentor? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I would say ability to listen is probably the, the first and, and foremost important one. If you're going to mentor somebody, you can't be spending your time, you know, waiting to talk because you're never going to be connected to that person or what their experiences or what their individual needs are because everybody's different. Everybody's going through something differently. Everybody sees the world in a different way. And so if you're going to communicate with them, because that's all mentorship really is, is a communication, you know, you're exchanging knowledge or you're exchanging information, but it's all up to the person, you know, the mentee, the person that's being mentored, they have to take the, the knowledge. They have to take, you know, wisdom or, or anything that, you know, you have imparted. It's up to them to utilize it and interpret it in their own way and take advantage of it. And so as a mentor, you can't do really anything for the other person. You can just be there and uh, give them some advice and things like that. But in order for anything that you say to be useful at all, it has to be founded in, in what their needs are. And the only way you get to that is, is by listening to them. Have there so, been have there been other um, photography mentors in your in your journey in photography? Yeah, um, the first one um, is somebody who passed away recently, and hmm. that is uh, it was it was it was a tough one. His name is he's not well known in the modern landscape photography community, at least the younger sort of Instagram crew and stuff like that. Um, but his name is Jody Forrester, and. He did a lot of shooting for National Geographic, and he uh, spent a lot of time in Antarctica um, photographing stuff, carrying around, you know, an 8x10 and a 5x7 and 60 pounds of gear and just, just crushing it all over the place. And so him, we have a natural history museum in Albuquerque, and right when I moved back here and was just barely starting, I went to an exhibit of his at the Natural History Museum, and I was just blown away. And it said that he lived in Albuquerque. And so I just hunted him down and was like, hey, man, I'd love to buy you some lunch if you wouldn't mind just telling me about your, your journey and photography and stuff like that. And so um, we did and we formed a, a good friendship and we had lunch, you know, a multitude of times. And it was really interesting because the main mentorship that I would say that I got from him was just a confidence in my work to go further. Um he didn't give me a lot of specific information or guidance or anything like that, other than just a sounding board in the community and somebody that was very positive and enthusiastic and really enjoyed the pursuit of photography and enjoyed being out in the field and, and living it. And seeing somebody else who was successful and had made a living out of it um, and wasn't jaded was, I, I think, was really a big one. 
I think right. the second one was um, when I was, I think, 31 or 32, I, um, I wanted to take a workshop and, and push my skills a little bit because I was just starting, you know, I had, I, I sort of took the natural progression that everybody does. You know, I discovered Photoshop sliders and pushed everything to the nth degree. And I was like, photography, great. You know, <laughs> look at this purple sky. Um, but I, you know, yeah, exactly. Um, but pretty quickly I was like, no, I think I'm making this up. I don't think this is where I want to be. And at the same time I had just joined, um, DeviantArt and found Mark Adamus and his work. And it was, you know, pretty groundbreaking at that time. He was one of the only, um, people, not the only one, um, but, but the, the land or the, uh, the landscape of landscape photographers was, was smaller then. um, so I saw his work and I reached out to him and ended up taking a three day private workshop with him and we hit it off and we, uh, we became friends pretty quickly on that and spent the second half of the workshop. It, it's funny. It was, it was raining just torrentially and we could have kept pushing it and we could have kept, you know, um, you know, trying to, uh, to produce good images from it. Sort of like the conversation for us started, uh, you and I, um, on, you know, how to approach difficult situations. Well, in this case, we approached it by going to a bar and playing pool for six hours and taking too many tequila shots. But, um, but we had a blast. And so then I, uh, went on a few more trips with him, uh, when he was down in the Southwest or I went up to the Yukon with him. Uh, the, the second time he went to the tombstones, uh, myself and another photographer and, and Mark were on that one. And so, uh, yeah, he definitely, in terms of scouting and frankly, in terms of approaching a scene in a much calmer way, uh, he really helped me a lot. One of the things that, that I struggled with, and I think a lot of people do, is especially when they're younger or starting out, they, they have a, a sense that they need to be good right away. And the clock is ticking. You know, you, you've got to produce and produce as fast as possible because, you know, you're getting older and whatever. I mean, I don't, I don't know what exactly... It right. is that motivates you gotta, that. You, you got to get those Instagram likes today. Yep. 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 <laughs> and so, you know, I would go and I would shoot with him and I would panic. You know, I would be like, oh my God, I got to get it. I got to get it. And shooting with him sort of taught me like, it's okay. You can go slower. See the scene for a while. Don't worry about nailing a shot. Just be here and let yeah. it come to you. And you sort of get out of your own way and the creative process will just kind of flow. Um, whereas... I mean, there were definitely a couple of years when I first started when I would come back with nothing from a trip because I was always driving to where I thought was better or running. Yeah. I was like, no, I got to go. No, it's over there. No, it's over there. And pretty soon, you know, this like explosive sunset is happening right above me. And I'm like, okay, well, I've got nothing because I tried for too much. And so, um, yeah, he really, he helped me with that. So good. Um, does, does anyone else come to mind? Um, so I've got a lot of friends in the in the community, but after I was shooting with Mark, I, a couple things happened, um, and this seems like a good segue into this. One is that I hurt my knee. Um, oh yeah, and I I also got really into shooting alone, um, and partly that was because I was in engineering school, and engineering was um, so I got my my bachelor's in in chemi in three years, which is pretty fast. And so that means I was taking 18 credit hours, 18 to 21 hours a semester. Plus I was working an internship at the labs. And so I was so high strung as a result of that, that when I would get a break, I just needed to be alone. And so I, 
I went through like a four or five year period where I don't think I met any other landscape photographers. Um, but as a result of that, um, my fitness suffered, but my ambitions didn't. Right. And so while I was in school getting weaker and weaker because I wasn't able to go to the gym as much as I wanted or, or whatever. And also, you know, moving into my thirties and not having quite as much innate strength and stuff. I, um, I started getting myself into trouble where I would go on backpacks and I would bring too much gear and the backpack would be too ambitious and I didn't have the strength for it. And it was something that I could have knocked out fine, you know, three years prior or something like that when I was just in in better shape. Um, And so I got into a, a sort of spiral where I kept getting tendonitis in my left knee. And it kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I was just like, whatever, I'll just push through it. It's tendonitis. It's not that big a deal. But tendonitis can get chronic and then it can get really painful all the time. And that's basically what happened. Um, I got to a point where, you know, I mean, just walking like a mile and my knee would be inflamed and just yeah. hurt like crazy. And it becomes, it's, it's called tendinosis at that point. And that sidelined me for a long time. I would still get out there and I would still shoot, but I stopped doing much exploration on foot. Everything that I started to do was just with my car. And it also basically led me to a situation where I was like, well, I can't do this professionally. Um, you know, clearly, you know, my body, it just can't handle it. And, you know, I've got this chronic injury. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to make it as, as a pro. I mean, that, that must have been incredibly challenging mentally it was brutal yeah it's 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 a really interesting scenario to feel like you are losing a fundamental part of yourself you know like like it's it's like you take your personality and you have a hundred percent of it and then every year you chip away more of that personality and i mean it you know, my relationship struggled as a result of it um my personal view struggled and it changes your mindset in a way that you start to become afraid of challenges, you know, afraid of pushing yourself, afraid of the world. And you also, with a chronic injury, one of the things at least that happened to me is that I started to, I started to make up situations for myself that it was, it it was like a biological defect I had that I was, I was more prone to injury. And so then if anything else happened, I was like, Oh, it's just, it's just, you know, part of my injury problem. And instead of treating it as a separate event, you know, that I could work through, through physical therapy or any other means, it was just like, oh, here's another one of my injuries. And so it would just, you know, I just basically got darker and darker and darker up until about two and a half years ago. And it, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a painful period. It was, it was a long period. It was about six years or seven years, I would say that were really, you know, sort of a a slow progression, both mentally and physically in, in a downward direction um how did how did that how did that influence uh the direction you took your photography so i mean it it forced me to not hike you know it forced me to explore more places that i could get to with my car but that still sort of met the explorer desire in me um you know i like national parks i think they're amazing i think it's just an incredible system that we have but there are so many people in them. I do not find them to be very natural. Um, you know, I can go sit in like the Zion campground and stuff, but it feels like a job. You know, like if I lead a workshop in Zion or something like that, it, it never feels like I'm in nature um, unless I'm sort of exploring some of the more off the beaten path parts or something like that. But, 
Yeah, and so it really forced me to to find places that I could get to with my car that were off the beaten path, and I did. Um, but slowly they became more recognized and more known, and so I would have to push out further. And eventually, you know, I was driving so long I just didn't have the time to to keep pushing further. And the thing that was is really hard for me is that you know you go to these places with your car, and initially you you photograph them. And it's great. They're new. But you, you know, you go back there and every time you go there, you see places you could hike to. Right. And you're like, this is cool where I am right here. But if I could just hike over there, it would be it would be amazing. And so that is uh, that just started to, to eat at me more and more and more. And I think that's why I got more down. The other thing that happened is that um, since I had an injury to my knee, I started favoring uh, that side of my body more and more and more, which started to screw up my back, which made it very difficult for me to drive. And so that was, I think, when my mental health really took a turn because I was like, oh my God, now I can't even drive to places. And so that also, after about six months of my back really hurting, I was like, this is crazy. Like I I was like, I'm, I'm still strong. I'm young. I'm fit. I'm healthy. Like, this is just crazy that I'm injured like this. this there, there must be a solution to this. Right. And so I got back online and just... I mean, I had done a ton of dive, deep dives. I had been to a ton of, you know, specialists and of all different varieties, you know, um, chiropractors and um, acupuncturists and orthopedists and you name it. You know, I'd seen multiple of them and nobody had really helped me until I was watching YouTube and I found a doctor in Australia, actually. And she had just recorded a seminar that she was giving on tendinosis and how the, the standard Western medical community was getting it wrong. And it was treating it uh, from the, the sense of pain, basically saying, well, we're going to monitor your pain level and that's going to be our metric for success. And she said, that's just wrong because you have these abnormally grown nerves. Basically what happens is that a part of your tendon dies. Um, and in that process, nerves grow into it. And those nerves are abnormally shaped and they're oversensitized. Um, and so that's where the pain function comes from. So everything hurts. <laughs> everything hurts all the time. But what she showed is that um, functionally, like structurally, the tendon actually regrows a larger area around that dead area than you had before. And so your tendon is actually stronger mechanically than it was. And so the problem is not the pain. You should not be targeting the pain. You should be targeting function. And the, so that should start with strength training. And then if you do that at a controlled level, you can manage the pain and actually start to desensitize the nerves. And so I've been doing that over the last two and a half years. And I am at a state that I frankly didn't imagine would be possible. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm ready to do, I'm ready to start exploring and backpacking all these places that I've, I've got a map <laughs> of the world that is just like, boom, 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 boom. You know, I mean, hikes everywhere that I've, that I've wanted to do. And so, yeah, this, uh, this fall, I'm going to start knocking out some some pretty epic hikes and hopefully have some pretty epic photos to, to come along with it. Yeah. That's, that's a great feeling to have when you can figure out what's going on and <clears throat> you can actually get back out there again and, and get back to your passion. I mean, I was putting myself in your shoes there and, you know, when I was in high school, I fractured my L5 vertebrae playing football and I was a baseball pitcher. So like I couldn't pitch anymore um, for a year. I had to go through all this, you know, physical therapy and all that. Same thing though. It's like, this is my entire life and I can't do it now. And it's like, it's so depressing. Um, yeah. Of 
course, for me, it only lasted a year or whatever, but I can imagine, like you said, six years of going through this and yeah, and the the problem is that when you target the the pain as being your metric, it is it's you don't have a proactive um, option for healing, right? The only thing you can do is not use it, and so it's like you can't. There's nothing you can do to help it. Um, whereas when my when my view of it switched to building strength. And then mediating the pain, that's a proactive thing that I could all of a sudden do. And so it's a measure of control over it that I all all of a sudden got. And it also, you know, it released the fear of the pain because everyone I talked to was just like, stay off it. Whatever you do, don't cause a flare up. You know, that's the worst. And I read online and I mean, obviously online is just a a black hole of depression or whatever. Like medical stuff is, oh, never do it. You should cut it up and with a better knife and put bleach in there. Never even get on like like a med like what is it pub PubMed or MedMD WebMD. Don't even get on any of that stuff because one, all conditions all have the same symptoms, right? You know, and so you can go as deep as you as you possibly can <laughs> on those. And all of the ones that they show to cover themselves legally, they all tell you the worst possible outcome. You right. know, so they don't miss something. They're like, oh, you stubbed your toe? Well, you could have a, released a blood clot and you're going to die of a stroke in 20 minutes. And you're like, oh, my God, this is just. So, right. Yeah, don't, man, self-diagnosing is <laughs> it's fraught, man. Be careful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but well, I'm curious, going through that journey of dealing with that and then emerging, hopefully, at the other side here, uh, what has that taught you about uh, the value of what you love most about photography? Well, it's definitely taught me like first and foremost, I know this is a cliche, but life is short, you know, like, and I don't mean that in a way that like we were talking about earlier, you've got to get out there and like run around like a chicken with your head cut off and just, you know, race, race, race. But what I do mean is that if you don't spend your time productively and you don't spend your time, if you don't take advantage of, of your time, it just slips away so fast. And, and that's why I'm, you know, I, I've started leading workshops and I'm pursuing that because like I said at the beginning, you know, this is, this is my chance to do something that I really love and I'm, I'm not going to let that slip away. You know, the, I mean, the, the worst things that can happen to you in your life or the worst regrets you're ever going to have are something you just didn't try. You know, I never lay in bed thinking about the things that I tried that didn't work out. Never, ever, ever. But I, you know, the things that I just never tried, you know, they, they haunt you on your, (laughs) those dark nights. So. Yeah, I just, um, it hasn't come out yet, but it will have been out when this podcast comes out. But I just wrote an article. I do these, like every month I'll do a article for On Landscape Magazine. And it's like a, it's called Portrait of a Photographer. And I just did one on um, my friend, Chris Byrne. I don't know if you know Chris, but Ooh. he's a former, okay. I didn't know this, but he worked in the stock market industry for like 17 years. Wow. And so his entire perspective of photography is all about risk and reward. Um, oh, that's interesting. And, but like what he realized in working in the industry is that just kind of what you're describing, like his entire life was slipping away like grains of sand through his hand because all he was focused on was his job. Yep. And he wasn't, and it, the way he put it was, you know, what you have to risk to get, what do you want to risk to get what you want? 
And what he wanted was his time back and he wanted to live his life more fully. And so what did that mean? He had to risk his marriage, his kids, where he lived, his job, his whole livelihood. And that's an interesting way to think about life. You know, it's scary. You know, I mean, I just got married and, you know, having, we're, we're going to have kids, um, you know, if, if biology works out and things like that for us. Um, I, that is a, it's a scary part for me because, you know, time on the road, time away from your family, that's not an easy thing. Um, I know other photographers that do it and I want to be, I want to be one of those. Um, but I mean, he's, Chris is absolutely right. You know, life, everything is a risk, you know, everything is a trade-off. You can't possibly do everything in life. And so you're going to have to make cuts and sacrifices somewhere. And I'm not saying you have to sacrifice the family, but you know, you might have to sacrifice other things. You might have to sacrifice friendships or, or other things, but. Or a better job. Yeah. Well, a higher paying. Sure. Right. Right. right, right. Like more financially stable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will definitely be sacrificing that, but I don't, I mean, right now I feel almost like I'm, like I'm lying to the people I work with, you know, like they're talking about bringing the company forward and they're like, then this is what we need to do. And, you know, these are, and, you know, let's talk about staffing and let's talk about, you know, costing and how we're going to do all these things. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, God, I just don't care. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, I'm sorry guys. Like you need somebody that's going to be like, you know, 110% like you guys are. And like I was two years ago, but I'm not there and I can't get it back. You know, my mind, you know, we're, we're sitting, you know, in like our quarterly, you know, management meeting and stuff like that. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, so, you know, if I shot, you know, this tree from this angle, you know, I don't think, you know, and if I, I want, I bet you you get into this canyon in Zion that people don't visit. I bet I could do. And so it's, you know, I'm like, I can't, you know, I'm, it's not fair to them either. Yeah. You know, they need somebody that's going to be. Oh, it's so interesting it, so. because I go through this every day myself. Like, and I, I mean, you sound like you're like me, like you, you know, you're going to do it the right way. Like you're still putting in the time. You're still, you're not like just phoning it in. No, not at all. I'm still, but at, but at the same time, it's like, all you can think about is photography. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's hard, right? What do you do? Oh man. Well, it's a little job? different. I, I work for a nonprofit that, um, helps people with intellectual and um, developmental disabilities. Oh, okay. And I'm Super the program director, so I, I oversee all of it. So, like, when I'm not fully in it, I mean, people it doesn't just, get done. People know, you know what I mean. So I I have to. Fortunately, the saving grace for me is that my job offers some pretty good time off. So, like, I only work Monday through Thursday, um, and then I get like 20 hours a month. Of vacation time so i work four tens so like every other month i can take 10 days off yeah that's awesome so that you know i can stay focused at work and like be really there and present yeah with the knowledge that you know in a month or two i can go on a really cool trip yeah that's that's one of the things that i i, I mean i'm basically gonna give them the option like next year i'm gonna say look you know i i'd love to keep working here for at least the foreseeable future, but I, I can only do like three or four days a week and I'm right. going to need two months off um, to lead workshops. And, you know, I mean that it's a, it's a transfer of knowledge period for them if they want to hire somebody to replace me, or if, if that is enough for them in, in the role that I do. And I, 
I, I cut off some of the ancillary tasks that I have and, and they're happy with that, then, you know, maybe that's the, the balance that I would strike so that I don't have to be all on photography. Because I know some people like, I remember Mark, the either the year after I met him or the second year after I met him, I was like, man, it looks like you're just crushing it in the field. You know, like you must be out all the time. He was like 300 days of travel last year. Yeah. I'm like, holy wow. <laughs> like, I don't yeah, think. That, that guy's got like at least one kid, right? I think he's got one. I think yeah. Galen. Um, I don't know if he has another. But still, I mean, yeah, it's super hard and, and that, to and feel like. I, I think Galen was two at, in that period. So I um, mean, I, I feel guilty whenever I leave for like four or five days. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I can't imagine being gone for three hundred. So, do you have kids? Yeah, I've got a a fourteen year old son. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, those are all things I think about too. It's like, you know, maybe when he's out of high school, I can, maybe that looks different. I don't know. Yeah. It's a tough one. You know, I mean, life, it's a, it's not a, a solvable question. You know, it's yeah, just no, measuring I, uh, what level you can live with. I really like the way you answered the question about teaching workshops though, because what I found is that oftentimes with photographers who want to go full-time, they teach because they have to, not because they want to. Yeah. Right. And, and I think on f- for, you know, if you like it or not, like teaching workshops is at least today, probably one of the most, mm, let's say financially secure ways of staying in the business full time. Yeah, I think um, so. But for a lot of people, it's not what they want to do. Right. But it's like, Oh, I'm still doing photography full time, even though I don't like this teaching thing a ton. Mm -hmm. You know, so, um, well, it's, it's one of the reasons that I have sort of designed the workshops the way that I have also in their sort of fluid concept, because then I get to shoot as well. I know some people that lead workshops and they'll say like, I never shoot on my workshops and stuff like that. And I don't know. I mean, you're out there in the elements. Like if I'm not shooting, I feel like I'm not going to be as enthusiastic for my clients. And I mean, I can shoot. The thing is like, I can, I, I can compose and shoot pretty quickly. In such a way that, you know, I can just, I, I know what's happening. I've, you know, I, I've scouted it. I, I've composed it. I can set up my camera in five minutes and then I can just set it on like aperture priority and walk away. And it sure. will just, you know, as the sun rises and stuff, I'll just bracket it and it'll just shoot for two hours while I'm helping my clients and stuff well, like that. But I mean, not only that, but to your earlier point, the importance of that communication piece, like when I did my workshops, um, I tell people like, I'm going to be shooting too, if, if it's something that I want to shoot, but also I'm pretty sure you want to see me do that because yep. you're going to get something out of watching me do my thing. Um, cause you're, I don't know like about you, but every time I go out with other photographers, you're going to learn something from how, yeah. like watching them approach a scene. Yep. Um, and so like when people say I never take images on my workshops, I, personally think for some learners that's a huge disservice because that's an amazing way to to show somebody not only composition but also like you know it's just just like in the field demonstration of how i'm reacting to what i'm seeing and feeling and this is why i'm choosing this you know these decisions i'm choosing and and like you know it's a perfect teaching opportunity in my opinion yeah and they get your enthusiasm too 
Right. Like, you know, oh my God, things, look how amazing yeah, this is. Exactly. Yes. One of the things that happens, I think, is that people come into nature and they don't spend enough time even. Even if something epic is happening in front of them, sometimes they don't know how epic it is. You know, because I've taken to people, I've taken people to the, to the, you know, Grand Canyon or places like that. And we'll have a sunset that, you know, it happens 30 minutes after we get there. And I did all this prep work to take us to the right place and all that stuff. And all they know is day one, 30 minutes into their workshop, this is what they're seeing. Well, they can be like, well, this is how it is. Right. And so if I'm not like explosive with my energy, they're just going to think, ah, this is just another day at the Grand Canyon, you know, whatever, or wherever you are, you know, going gonzo. They're like, holy smokes, this is, this must be insane. Well, and and potentially even more importantly, when the conditions aren't, perfect or whatever showing people how to be Mm. um, flexible and okay yeah the clouds aren't doing whatever or maybe this isn't exactly what you had in mind but like look how this soft light is illuminating this scene right here yep um or look how you can frame this over here and you don't even need clouds or whatever sky or and you know you're just you're it's teaching you know and so yeah for yeah, me, totally. that enthusiasm, like to your point, is it's pretty important. And it, I personally think it's hard to have that enthusiasm if you're not part of the process. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah completely. Because I've heard a lot of people say like adamantly, like I will never shoot on my workshops. And I could get that if you have like 15 students or something and you're yeah. like, this guy doesn't even know how to use manual or totally whatever. But, you know, if you've got two or three students or whatever, and you feel good about how you can help each one of them differently. And I mean, yeah, I, I think, I think getting the camera out is actually really important. Yeah. In my opinion. I mean, you yeah. don't have, obviously you're not going to be like, well, you guys have fun. I'm going to go. Yeah. I'm no, going to totally. go over there for like yeah. an hour and shoot, but you know, you guys have a good time. But yeah. at the same time, I think it's important for you to at least have your camera out and, show people what you, what you're seeing and what you're excited about. Yeah, yep, I agree. Good, 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 good. Well, along those lines, um, I would love for you to, you know, tell us what workshops you have coming up. Yeah. So right now I'm booking for next year. So anything that, uh, wow. Okay. We're, we're covered on that. Um, nice. Yeah. I, uh, I sold out the workshops that I had offered this year. And so next year, um, I'm doing one in Crested Butte. Uh, the Crested Butte region, and that uh, includes uh, some lesser shot areas like the Great Sand Dunes and Black Canyon, um, which I absolutely love. But the the wildflower bloom in Crested Butte in June is just mind boggling. It's pretty yeah. silly. <laughs> it's on. I was just. I mean, especially from New Mexico. New Mexico is an interesting state where yeah. everything's sort of hidden. You have to work really hard to find things. And so in New Mexico, if you see like 10 wildflowers, you're like, oh my God, I struck gold. Right. Like, you know? And wow, then you go to I Crested Butte and you're like, wow. You're like, like, wow, that's 10 flower. miles of, you know, yeah, whatever. That, that wildflower has a wildflower growing inside of it. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I love about that workshop is that it's pairing the beginning of monsoon season with the wildflowers. And so the likelihood, um, or there's a, uh, there's a reasonable chance that, that you get lightning oh, as well. Oh, you'll get storms. You'll get rain. Yep. Probably. You'll get it all. And you'll so, get clouds. Yep. Yep. Um, I love that one. Um, I'm leading one in New Mexico at the Oregon Mountains. 
uh, and White Sands and a few other areas down there uh, during yeah. the, the Claret Cup blooms and stuff like that. And New Mexico is a state that is frequently overlooked, but is very charming and very unique for a lot of the areas that it has. Um, I agree. White Sands is one of those places that you can, you can see photos of it and it's cool. But once you actually get out there and the textile nature or the, um, yeah, the textile nature where you're, you're, you're feeling the sand and in the spring, the sand, it's so reflective. It's still cold, even when oh. it's like 90 degrees out. It's so unbelievable. You're just, you know, you just pull off your shoes, walk around bare, barefoot and start composing. It's just, it's like being on the moon, but if the moon were like a nice climate, you know. Yeah, I air. did um, three days down there over Easter uh, for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Easter is ideal. Oh my gosh, it was so fun. Yeah, it's it's such an experience beyond just the photography. Yes, that I love, and, and um, it's um it's not super big, like in terms of the infrastructure. You mm-hmm. know, it's like that one road that goes in, does a little loop, and then you're back out. Yep. But once you get in there, like, there's endless miles of exploration you can Oh, do. yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's you can insane. camp in it. One of the things that people don't frequently do is you can backpack into it. And so for one of the nights on the workshop, they lead a backpack in there where I can carry basically all the gear in because it's only a mile and it's basically flat. And then you just set up. And the thing that really makes it such a, like, space age wild experience is when you wake up in the dunes and it's just silent and you're barefoot walking around on all the white sand and it's um it's a really cool place so it is i love that workshop and then the uh um the biggest workshop that i lead is to the grand canyon for the monsoons and that covers the grand canyon and uh parts of the res where i uh um know people and um have access to some of the backcountry arches back there and things like that. And, and that is a workshop that really um, utilizes the, the methodology I was talking about of, of being nimble and reacting to the, the situation because the monsoons happen so fast out there. They're so unpredictable. You have to be ready to react on a dime. And so that workshop will never be the same two years in a row. Well, all right, Colin, wrapping things up, who would you recommend that our listeners know more about uh, for the podcast? Yeah. So um, the first one is a local photographer named Jake Worth. He shoots out of Albuquerque and he is just an awesome guy. He's one of my really good friends here and he shoots a multitude of storm chasing and landscape photography. And one of the things that I really appreciate about his work is um, you get a lot of storm chasers that are really good at the chase, but their composition and attention to detail is uh, is not quite as strong. Whereas Jake, I think, started as a landscape photographer first. And so he does a really good job of building uh, sort of the story and composition into the, the storm chase. And so he's got some some really great stuff that I highly recommend people check out. Um, The next person who I will probably mess up her name, she's a German photographer, and I've never met her in person, but I've conversed with her uh, through the socials, and she's a super cool person. Her name is Laura Opelt, and she's a German-based photographer, and she just has a command of light and shadow that just creates this innate drama in every one of her shots that is just super compelling. Um, 
And yeah, she shoots a lot of really interesting places. And every time she posts something, I'm just like, oh my God, like, why am I even trying? <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. That's how you know. It's yeah. like, oh, I got um, lots of room to grow. Yeah, no, totally. She's, she's, she's really awesome. And she's young. I mean, she's just crushing it. Um, another one is somebody that I have uh, shot with uh, a couple times and is a really great guy. And he also has a very compelling style and he shoots um, really unique uh, locations. His name is Matt Messenheimer and I'm probably really butchering his last name. Um, but he is on Instagram and his handle, I believe is Matty Mice. Matty Mice. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, he did a, he partnered with Max Foster to do like a really cool, like I think it was our world in focus or something like that. They did mm-hmm. a photography competition and um, yeah, he's done um, he's done a lot of cool stuff, and he leads workshops all over the place, Hawaii, all over yeah, the US. Yeah, he does US. like crazy like pack rafting adventures yep. and stuff in the yeah, Yukon yeah. He's done stuff. those with Max, and um, he invited me on that, but it was at a time that uh, that I wasn't fit enough, and so the next one they do, I'm gonna try to hop uh, on that. And I'm down with that. Crush some stuff, yeah. um, and just a generally awesome guy. Yeah, uh, he seems just, really cool. Yeah, super genuine, super fun. Um, the last one is somebody that I just think doesn't have a following remotely comparable to how good he is. Um, and he is like a pure storm chaser. I mean, he, but he is, he's able to predict events at a level that I, it, it just completely confounds me. His name is Jim Tang and he's only got 2,500 followers on Instagram, but he gets out there and gets some of the wildest scenes with with storms. And so I highly recommend people to, to check his work out. And I've never met him in person, but um, hopefully I'll run into him for one of these storm chases. Someday. Right on. Well, those are great suggestions. I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. And thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I had a great time. And, you know, I'm super glad to hear that you're on the mend and we're going to start seeing some more uh, backcountry images. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of new stuff. And, um, if you're down in Albuquerque, hit me up. Let's grab a beer. And uh, otherwise, I, uh, I'll hit you up in Durango if I drive through there. Yeah, perfect. I, I forgot to ask, what did you do when you lived here? Uh, I drank too much. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite drinking establishments? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I'm trying to – it was a while ago now. I'm trying to remember what they were. There were Solid Muldoons. I don't know if that's still around. Never heard of that. Oh, really? Um, there is – is it Falkenberg's? Oh, yeah, Lady Falks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that doesn't one, exist yeah. anymore. Oh, really? Man, all the all the haunts that I knew. Um, those, yeah, the, there's a there's a bar on the way to the uh, Purgatory that we would hang out at. Oh, like the school bus? Schoolhouse? The school bus, yep. Yep, the, the school bus. Yeah, yeah yep. okay. Yeah. And, um, That's a good place. Yeah, with all the, the dollar bills on the ceiling and stuff? Yeah. 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 What did you, what were you doing when you lived here? I was, uh, so this could enter into a whole, you know, 15 more minutes of conversation, but, um, but I, I'm, I'm happy to oblige. I don't have anywhere to be and I haven't finished my beer yet. Um, so yeah, when I left Albuquerque, I was at sort of an identity crisis where I didn't really know who I was. It was sort of like, like I was alluding to with, with the sort of instruction style that my dad had, where he gave me a really good sense of curiosity, 
but not a very good sense of direction. And so when I graduated high school, all I knew is that I didn't want to be in Albuquerque and I wanted to see the world. And so I just tried to get out there. Um, yeah. At the same time, I was pretty introverted still at the time. And so, sure. you know, I would use alcohol to sort of break out of that, but that doesn't work for very long. You know, alcohol is fine if it's mm-hmm. just, you know, you're just using it, you know, for, for some little things, but some life changing sort of thing, like yeah. changing your personality, it's not a good yeah, it's a dangerous proposition. Yeah. So so anyway, I um yeah, Durango was the first stop on that sort of beginning of journey of self exploration. And um it was a ton of fun. You know, I, I snowboarded all the time and went to school and failed out of school and realized, you know, it's okay to take a little bit of time off school. Um, because I'm not doing I'm not doing it well. So I should only do things that I'm doing well. Um and so, so you're at Fort Fort Leisure? Yeah. I was, yeah. For, <laughs> I have one credit to show for it. One class, I think I passed out of, I think eight that I signed up for over the two, two semesters. I made it through one, but. So that must have been. Uh... Well, thanks to Colin for joining me on the podcast this week. I had a great time, Captain. <laughs> If you enjoyed our chat, you can catch our bonus episode over on Patreon, where we discuss backcountry road adventures in the American Southwest and getting our vehicles into lots of precarious situations. It was a fun little conversation, so if you want to check it out, just join us over on Patreon by visiting the link in the show notes. I also wanted to remind listeners that we have officially opened the Natural Landscape Photography Awards for year two. We have made a ton of improvements this year and increased the prize pool to $17,500 cash, which by the way is more than Epson and International Landscape Photographer of the Year. And we've added several new awards that you can win. We have also increased the prize pool for our project submissions and we have new sponsors in FLM tripods and F-Stop gear. So there's plenty of awesome things that you can win. You can upload and change your entries anytime before August 31st, so there's no risk in entering today, even if you don't know what images you want to enter. Even if you think you can't win, there's always a chance that your work will make it into our annual fine art book, and if it does, you'll get the book for free. We also have been offering and recording critique sessions with our judges, and we're trying to find ways to provide extra value to you, the awesome landscape photography community. Thank you to everyone who has supported this endeavor, We appreciate you a lot. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.